Bless his holy name. For there is no one like the Lord. Amen. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Because Jesus has authority over everything. Amen. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 23 through chapter 9, verse 8. The book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 23 through chapter 8, verse 9. As we end today our series on the gospel above all, and focusing on the power of one and recognizing that it is Jesus who is the one who is in authority. So that's Matthew 8, verses 23 through verse 9, 8. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying these two words, and behold... And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. And that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there a great and, and there was a great calm. And the man marveled, saying, What sort of of man is this that even winds and sea obey him. And when he came to the other side to the country of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us O son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting back into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. The Gospels are all about Jesus. In fact, the entire Bible is all about Jesus. But so many times, it's easy for us to lose sight of him and focus our sermons and our Bible studies on something that is not really of primary importance. As we look at Matthew 8, 23 through 9, 8, we see three descriptions of Jesus performing miracles. And it's easy to take many rabbit trails when you look at these three events in scripture because they're so breathtaking. We see Jesus as he calms the storm. We see Jesus as he heals the demon-possessed man. We see Jesus as he forgives the sin of the paralytic. But what do all these three passages have in common? What's the point of all three passages? The point is that Jesus is the one in authority. Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority over carnal demons. And Jesus has the authority over the consequences of sin and forgiveness. Jesus is the one in authority. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let us recognize that this is your son come down from above to rescue us, to pull us like a branch from the fire to save us from your coming wrath. He's endued with all power and authority because you have given him that authority. Bless us today and make it clear to us that we need never be afraid because Jesus has total authority over heaven, the earth, and under the earth. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. As we start out this morning, we see that Jesus has authority over the wind, the waves, the sea. He has authority over all creation. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You know that Mark and Luke both shared his story with Matthew, and as usual, Matthew's version is shorter. It only accounts for 21 of the 73 words that are in common with both Mark and Luke. So it, sometimes it doesn't resemble them at all. But despite that fact, there are still no major differences on the important parts. For example, you don't have in Mark or Luke the equivalent of this statement that Matthew brings to light. Why are you afraid, O oh you of little faith? And then also we see in Mark and Luke, the boat filling with water, 
But in Matthew, he's saying that the boat is covered by the waves. Mark and Luke use this story to teach, uh, use it in a teaching context. But when you see Matthew, he wants to make it clear to each and every one of us that this story represents the authority and the power of our Lord Jesus. So Matthew starts off, he tells us that Jesus gives the command back in 18 to go to the other side and that Jesus embarks with his disciples and they follow him. The disciples here refer to those 12 and not to all those who had come to see Jesus. We know this because we see the possessive his that tells us he's talking about those who belong to him in an intimate way. And then you notice that Matthew doesn't say a boat like Luke and Mark does. He says the boat. He has a definite boat in mind. So the disciples follow him. And the story of this storm also shows that he's concerned with discipleship. And it really brings a question before each and every one of us this morning. Does Jesus have the authority in your life to ask you to follow him into the storms of your life? And then we see a phrase that's going to be repeated all the way through the three passages we deal with this morning. And behold, it's a way that Matthew clarifies and makes things more vivid. In the Greek, this word is horao, and it means to see with your eyes, to see with your mind, to perceive and to experience and to take heed. It's like walking into a room in the military and saying, attention. Matthew one twenty gives us an example of this. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for she is what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Then Matthew lifts up another word, and he uses an unusual word for the word storm in the Greek. Sesmos. Sesmos commonly refers to an earthquake. It's where we get the word seismic. So what Matthew is trying to get over to us is that what Luke and Mark call a lake, he calls a sea, and the storm that they are dealing with, he's trying to make sure you recognize this storm is so much more intense that it's almost like an earthquake and the boat is literally covered by the waves. When Satan comes in like a storm, it takes the Lord to lift up what? The standard. So we see here that the magnitude of this storm is incredible. And you wonder, how could anyone sleep or stay asleep in the midst of this storm? You know, back in the Marine Corps, you have what's called an MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, and I was an MP. And one of the things we always knew, whenever you arrested an innocent man, he could never sleep through the night. But if you arrested somebody who was guilty or thought they were in control of the situation, they slept soundly. Jesus sleeps soundly here because Jesus is the one that controls the storm. Even though he's had a heavy day of healing and teaching and preaching and dealing with potential disciples, in his human self, he lays down and he falls asleep and he sleeps through it. So they come to Jesus and they wake him up. Matthew uses this six-word expression, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Matthew alone shows that the disciples address Jesus as Lord and that they recognize that he has the power to save. He uses this verb, 
perish 19 times in Matthew. And when you see it in other translations, you see it says, we are sinking. We are going down. We are about to die. We are drowning. But here it says clearly, save us, Lord. We are perishing. The present tense here shows us that they're in the process. It's already in progress. And this is a cry of anguish for these disciples as they implore Jesus to save them. And then Mark and Luke, when Jesus stills the storm, is not immediate. But when it comes to Matthew, the moment he rebukes it, everything is calm. And then he asks the question, why are you afraid? Now when you think of that question, why are you afraid, it kind of connotes that maybe they were cowards or maybe they were timid. But think about why Jesus is asking that question. Because these men were what? Fishermen. They were well versed in the storms and they were well versed in how the Sea of Galilee in a moment could become from a calm sea to a great tempest. So it's it's very significant to ask these sailors and these fishermen, why are you so afraid? Why are you unraveling? So Jesus goes on to characterize them as you of little faith. He's not saying that these men had no faith, but they had an ineffective faith. They had a deficient faith. They have an immature faith. How many of you under the sound of my voice this morning have an ineffective faith, have a deficient faith, have an immature faith? Jesus shows them that they should have trusted more in him than in their doubts. You know, dealing with troubled disciples, Jesus turns away from them and he turns toward those winds He turns toward the troubled sea and he rebukes it. And really, it's so interesting here because he rebukes the winds and the sea as if they had an evil force in them that was putting these disciples in peril. And Matthew, again, doesn't describe a gradual decrease of the force of the winds or the waves, but a certain stoppage of the storm's activity. I think the old King James calls it, he says, peace be still. So even in the midst of a storm, Jesus hits the default button and takes it back to what should be evidence in itself, peace. He goes on, he shows the same authority that God himself shows in 2 Samuel 2, 14 through 16. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, so we know this is Yahweh. The Lord thundered from heaven and the most high uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. We are not to think when we read this story that the storm just blew over by itself but that Jesus Christ has a power over the elements and he replaced the tempest and the confusion with calmness. Then what do we see happen in 27? The men marvel. They, this means that the men in that boat were incredibly impressed that Jesus had the authority to take power over creation. So what is their next question? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
They were powerless to do anything about their situation. Have you ever been powerless to do anything about the storms that you were facing in life? But it is Jesus that has authority over all of those storms and we should be duly impressed just like these men in the boat were that he has the authority to bring calm out of chaos. So where did he get this authority? Well, let's look at the Bible. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. So Jesus has preeminence, right? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? By the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So why does he do all this? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And how does this happen, Pastor? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus Christ is the one that has authority over creation. But Jesus also has authority over carnal demons. Yes. Look at the scripture here. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of man? Have you come here to torment us before the time. Now I heard of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen's fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Interesting here, where you see these two demon-possessed men the Bible tells us that in all things, we are to hold scripture as being truthful and solid, the foundation in which our lives are built upon. I know in the culture that we now live in, people have a problem when we think about demon possession and when we think about spirits being cast out. But what does the Bible teach us in 2 Peter 1, 18 through 21? We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully affirmed. So what Peter is saying, that there was a time when the three disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And they saw an amazing event when they saw Moses and Elijah appear before them, when they saw Jesus uh, in his glorified body in a robe that was whiter than any fullest brush could make it. And they're comparing that event as being secondary to the word that Jesus has left for us to study. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Who is a morning star? Jesus. Knowing first of all that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This account shows up in Mark, in Luke, and in Matthew. And because it's in the word of God, we cannot dismiss it because we don't understand it. Just because we don't understand something does not make something not true. So we see here, demon possession, even though it's rare in all of the Old Testament, and you only see a few examples in the gospel, it comes upon unbelievers. So it starts out here, and Matthew tells us, and when they came to the other side, to the country of the gatherings, it was obviously a predominantly Gentile country because otherwise you wouldn't have herdsmen raising pigs, would you? And we see these two demons coming out of the tombs and they were incredibly violent. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one could use that road anymore. And then we see as they encounter Jesus, you hear them cry out, but this time they're crying out in an audible voice. What have you to do with us, son of man? Isn't it amazing that in the gospel, the only time that people immediately recognize Jesus as the son of man, they're all demons? Isn't it amazing that when they ask him that, the first thing they want to know, have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, Demons, even though they're working night and day, putting all of their effort into their God, which is Satan, they recognize that they're on a clock. They recognize the urgency in doing what they have been asked to do now to work while it's still day. You see, isn't it amazing? Everybody's not playing but us. He said, well, what are you doing here, son of man? It's not time. So you see, they recognize that Jesus, again, has the authority to torment them. Otherwise, why are they concerned? So we recognize here, that they understand that there's punishment in the appointed time for them where they'll be cast into hell with Satan himself. Matthew 25, 41 says this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, 
you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, these demons recognize their ultimate faith and they recognize it's going to be unpleasant and they don't want it to come quicker than it should. Matthew pauses the scene for a moment. He says there are some pigs at a distance and they are feeding themselves, which is normal, a peaceful occupation for pigs. There's nothing to indicate that we are to consider any trouble from these animals. And then the demons speaking through these men ask Jesus, they make, they beseech him, they ask him a question, if you cast us out, send us into those herds of pigs. You see, they recognize his authority. They recognize he could torment them. He rec- they recognize that he could cast them out. That he had the authority to do it, and he probably would. There's no indication in the text why they wanted to go into pigs. My own conjecture is recognizing that they're unclean animals and they were suitable for unclean spirits. Jesus simply tells them, go. They go. They don't go out of those demon-possessed men because of some consensus. They go because of the very command of Jesus through his authority. They came out and they went into the pigs and then Matthew comes through again and behold, they go down a steep bank and drown in the waters. Can you imagine what value this must have been to any one of those herdsmen that maybe in their unbelieving life was possessed by an evil spirit to see that it could be removed through the power of the one that they had never valued at all, Jesus Christ. The herdsmen, afraid, fled into the city and they told everything that happened, especially about the demon-possessed man. You know, I wonder about that because they're telling everything about what happened, especially about the demon-possessed man. Were they telling that because of any kind of conversion or they're sharing that to cover themselves up? Because remember, they're herdsmen. They're just watching these people's pigs. The people in the city are the owners of said pigs. And now said pigs have drowned in the lake. And they want to make sure that they divorce themselves from any responsibility. And then we see again, Matthew lifts up the vivid climax and behold, the whole town was impressed and everybody from the city came out to the lake to do what? To meet and greet Jesus. You expect that they would be willing to come out and thank this person with total authority over evil spirits and deliverance of people who had been marginalized for so long. But that's not what we see in this passage. In fact, Matthew uses the same word, the same verb that the demons begged him to cast them out into the pigs. These people now beg Jesus to leave. We shouldn't be startled. That's no different than what we would do. We don't want the authority of Jesus in our lives. We want Jesus just as long as he's serving our carnal purposes. As long as he makes every day 
intolerable. As long as we find peace and prosperity, Jesus is all right with me. But when it comes to his authority over our lives, when it comes to his lordship and our responding to him, not as our homeboy, but as the holy God. You see, we, we have made Jesus too familiar. We have forgotten that he's creator, we are creature. That he's not here to serve us, but we are to serve him. He's already served us by giving his life on the cross to redeem us from our sins. And anytime we want to do, and anytime we want to live, and anytime we want to give the way we want to, we beg Jesus to leave the region. They were more concerned about their economic laws than they feared the one that could bring them peace at all times. It tells a lot about our values, doesn't it? That we value more our own work than we do the work of Jesus in our lives. And then lastly, we see that Jesus has the authority over the consequences of sin and forgiveness. Look at verses 9, 1 through 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? I love this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And I love their response in contrast to the response of the ones that begged Jesus to go. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This story again is found in both Mark and Luke, but again, Matthew's account is the shortest. It's 126 words. I think Mark has 196 and Luke is traditionally long-winded because he's the doctor, the historian. He probably has 212 or more. And the biggest omission that you see in Matthew is that he doesn't speak of the man, the, the bearers of the man opening up a hole in the roof and lowering the man down in front of Jesus in the house. But we see here that Jesus declares forgiveness of sins before he heals the physical problem with the man. Matthew's emphasis here is on Jesus' power over sin and forgiveness. So he crosses over. He doesn't tell us where he crossed over. In the, in the context, you figure it out that he crosses over the Sea of Galilee and he goes back to his own town. Now he, the man from Nazareth resides in Galilee and it's the center of his ministry. Matthew continues to use this vivid uh, phrase, and behold, you see the paralytic being carried in on a bed, on a mat. Not a word is recorded in any of the gospels that they explain to Jesus the plight of this man. Obviously the plight of this man was so obvious it was communicated without words. 
Jesus saw their faith. And I believe that Jesus saw their faith in one or two ways. Just the sheer act of bringing their friend to Jesus, knowing that Jesus knows what to do in any situation. It reminds us of Hebrews 11.1 1, when we think of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here the concern is trust and faith in Jesus. Knowing that he is the healer not only of our physical ailments, but most importantly he has authority to grant spiritual healing as well. So the faith here can't be combined or confined to just the friends. I believe that the paralytic shared that faith himself. And look how Jesus welcomes this paralytic on the mat. He says what? Take heart, my son. Could that be a warmer greeting for someone you just met? And then he adds right behind that, your sins are forgiven. Those words must have astounded everybody within earshot. I think it's incredibly important that he ignores the physical problem that that man obviously has and grants him the forgiveness of his sins. Sins are a comprehensive term, including all of this man's departures from the way of righteousness, past, present, and future. In fact, earlier in Matthew, probably 121, we see that his name will be Jesus because he will forgive his people of their sins. But here is the only specific place where we see Jesus forgive the sins of an individual. Matthew greets us again. Behold, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They had questions about anyone that was not God that they would not be able to forgive the sins of anyone. And think of the contempt just in what they are saying here. They said, this man. They see Jesus as just another Galilean. Nothing special. He's a blasphemer because no one can forgive sins but God alone in Jesus now remember they're speaking in their hearts they're talking to themselves but Jesus is able to hear just as clear as they were speaking aloud and he challenges them when he says why do you think evil in your heart again I said it last week I'll probably say it next week Everybody says, well, you know, Jesus knows my heart. That's the problem. Jesus knows our heart. Why do you think evil in your heart? He castigates their thoughts before the thought even comes to their lips. And then Jesus gives them a question that takes them on a further inquiry. He says, which one would be harder to do? To tell a person that their sins are forgiven or to tell a person to get up and walk? He recognizes that they would choose the first statement. But on the deeper level the second statement is easier because you can say get up and walk but only a deity can forgive sins 
So Jesus demonstrates that he can do both. Look what he says. Look at the sentence that he gives proof to that fact. But that you may know. How many times did Jesus praying? He says, I'm not praying for myself. I'm praying that they may know. He says, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He makes that statement so that there will be absolutely no question about his official capacity. He is the Son of Man. And he's able and has the authority to forgive sins on earth in an earthly manifestation and also because he is Jesus, he's over what? Heaven, earth, and under the earth. Jesus doesn't take the time to deny that the scribes have it wrong. He just simply looks at the man and says, get up, take your bed, and go home. And the man simply following his instructions, he rose up, Matthew says, and he went home. The same man that it took four companions to bring him is now able to walk home and carry his own mat. What must that feel like? Is that, would that be just overwhelming to have that sense of freedom when you have been so tied down and overwhelmed and burdened by your sins and things that have kept you in a certain place. You know that saying freedom is available today? That we're all paralytics in some way or the other because of the sin that confines us and constrains us, but we can find freedom in Christ and that we can be released from that by having such a faith in him, recognizing that he is the one and the only one that can pay the penalty for our sins that we might be. See, someone has to pay the sin debt. Either Christ pays it or we pay it, and we can never pay it because it can only bankrupt us. But Christ paid it all. And when we are able to recognize this, then we too will be able to get up and walk home in the freedom of knowing that we are truly loved and we should recognize who gave us this gift and glorify him. We see, again, the reaction of this crowd contrasted with the reaction of those who begged Jesus to go. It said they were afraid. There is something sacred that we have lost as a church of Jesus Christ, and that is the fear of God. Though when I say fear, I'm talking about the reverence, the understanding that he is totally other than us. Fully God, fully man, but God supreme that he is creator and we are his creation, that we are to serve him with all of our life. And they not only were afraid and had the fear of God, they glorified and worship him. You know, when I ask for a hand clap praise or when you recognize a point that you should rejoice, I, you know, I'm not looking for your applause, but it should be forthcoming, not for me, but what? Because of what was said? Amen is like, indeed, I agree. 
It's not for building. You know, if you never raise your hand, really, you are overhearing this morning a conversation I'm having with God. You, I love you, but you are secondary in this. Your secondary, primary is him that I will have to give an account to. So it's important that we give him the praise that he's due because he's a great God and greatly to be praised. So they worship and glorified him because he had given, and this is interesting, because he had given authority to men. He gave authority to one man. He gave authority to Jesus. And Jesus gives authority to whomever he wills. But he's the power behind any authority that we could ever have. If we stay in the center of God's will in our living in our giving, in our preaching, then God backs us up 100% because we're not violating authority. But when we seek to lift our own selves up and not lift him up who has the power to draw on all man unto himself, then we're totally out of authority. We should be like that centurion that says, I am a man under authority and a man of authority. Always having a plumb line uh, connected to Jesus Christ who is our true authority. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is your son, the one and only one that has total authority over our lives. Lord Jesus, we are called to live a life worthy of the one whom has called us. We ask that you will stand up in us on every leaning side, build us up in the faith, constrain us, convict us, and compel us to live out a life that honors you and shows an unbelieving world your power, your authority, your greatness, your grace. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.